Hi everyone, and welcome to another Firms Consulting Podcast. Today's podcast is linked to the article, Is This the Decline of BCG, which you can find in our quarterly. And rather than talking about BCG in particular, I thought that I would take this view, this podcast in a slightly different direction, elevate the podcast above BCG and have a general discussion about what leads to the decline of great consulting firms. And the flip side of that is why doesn't boutiques and smaller firms become great, right? You can you can view the podcast through both lenses and both would be, you know, equally I think valuable. So in thinking through this podcast I wanted to present both my viewpoint in terms of why consulting firms fail or why consulting firms never take off and I wanted to touch on my experiences both as you know when I was a partner at a major firm and how I helped grow that firm and well I would say maybe that's taking too much credit but maybe grow the practice that I was um, running at that point and then I also want to step back and talk about uh, my experience is running a boutique firm of about 200 consultants after I left um, uh, the big three. And my experience is there because I think it gives me a kind of a unique viewpoint um, about firstly having the enormous resources the major firms have and then coming back and talking about the challenges of trying to build up those resources to be a major firm. So I'm going to look at this through two lenses. The first one is more around the life cycle lens, and the second one is more around the lens to continue growing. Both are important. Let's look at the life cycle lens, right? I'm going to break down a consulting firm now into its most basic attributes, and we're going to talk about how those attributes play together to create the life cycle of a consulting firm. At its most basic level, a consulting firm is a group of individuals, partners for lack of a better word, who have gotten together because they believe the knowledge they have, someone will pay money for it. That's it. I mean, you can talk about how McKinsey and BCG don't sell, but that's basically what they're doing. A bunch of guys and sometimes women get together and say, well, I have unique knowledge in this area and someone's going to pay me money for that, right? Now, so at its most fundamental level, the first attribute is that you have to have client relationships and that has to lead to the fact that someone's going to give you money for your knowledge, right? So that's the first attribute. You have to do that. The second attribute is once they give you money for your knowledge, you have to deliver on what they've given you money for. You can call that the delivery side of things and you can call the first attribute the sales side if you want to. doesn't matter. You know, that's what it is. The third attribute is that you need to hire people. And it's a continuous process of hiring. A consulting firm is not so much, oh, we're going to go through a hiring phase now, not worry about hiring later. Hiring is continuous. Once you hire, and that's the, the third attribute, once you hire someone, you've got to develop them and train them. And the amount of time and effort and resources required to train people is, I would say, a little bit scary. The amount of just 
you know, sitting down and talking someone through what they need to do. All good consultants are trained in a mentorship model. What that means is that you don't become a good consultant by reading a book or going through a training course. No, you become a good consultant partially through being on a project, but primarily by being on a project and having someone talk you through what needs to happen. You can be on any project, but unless someone invests the time to train you, you're not really going to go very far. So the training is the fourth attribute or the development. The fifth attribute, which is also important, is that it's the development of new ideas. A consulting firm is only as good as the ideas they have. And what typically happens is that when you're in a major firm, you can leverage the ideas of your fellow partners, right? So, you know, if you look at most major firms, they are what they call these partners who publish a lot of articles, like um, let's take Chris Souk from um, Bain and Company, for example. He is the strategy guy at uh, Bain, and a lot of the Bain partners around the world kind of leverage and use his knowledge. Now, the point is that at a large firm, there are many generators of knowledge. At a small firm, there are not many generators of knowledge. So you get caught into this trap whereby you can't do everything, so you pick and choose what you're going to do. So let's just talk about that. You've got five attributes. You've got to sell, deliver, hire, develop the people you hired, and then develop unique intellectual property. So let's talk about how firms now decline by analyzing it through this lens, right? Well, sales is difficult. I think we can all agree selling to clients is difficult. You know, you've got, um, if, you're, if you're looking at it from McKinsey's perspective, you've got BCG, Bain, and other competitors. If you're looking at it from Bain's perspective, you've got BCG, McKinsey, and other competitors, Booz, Deloitte, and so on. There's a whole variety of companies here all in an unregulated space promising they can solve every problem you have but really don't know what they are doing sometimes i would say a lot of times more than we think and they have to learn through the process now what happens is that when a firm reaches a certain critical mass they have a large fixed operating expense. That's the reality. When you're the size of BC, you're the size of McKinsey, you've got to pay all those people that you know, you've know you hired, you've got to maintain the beast that produces intellectual property, runs the website, runs conferences, runs recruiting. The point is, there's a lot of costs attached to that. It's just the nature of the game, right? You cannot avoid it. The fixed costs for consulting firms are very, very high, you know, exorbitantly high. The variable costs, obviously, much, much lower than you think. What are the variable costs? Paper, maybe? A few laptop leases? Not as much as you think, right? Travel, transport, you can expense to the client anyway, so no real issues there. So what happens is that this fixed cost base becomes really, really, really high. Now, strategy theory teaches us the following. Firms can grow incrementally. That means they can take small bets. They can say, hey, we're in Malaysia. It's easy for us to go into Singapore. Close by, the cultures are different, but not that different, right? Or firms can take revolutionary bets. They can say, okay, we're nowhere in Latin America. Let's go into Latin America, right? Now, an analogy of this is, um, I would think, 
to some extent, McKinsey is more evolutionary in the way they grow. They do not take big bets. Yeah, they'll tell you they take big bets, but they don't. They've been pretty slow and steady in the way they do things. If McKinsey wants to open an office in one region, it will find uh, consultants from that country who want to go to that office. I think BCG and Bain have been far more revolutionary in the bets they've taken. They will acquire a local firm to build an office. Bain will go even further to hire local partners who have never worked at Bain to come in as senior partners of the firm to help them grow. Now, why are they doing this? Why would Bain and BCG buy a firm and hire a local partner to come in and serve as an anchor? Well, it's very simple. It's sales. A local firm has the relationship, they have the network, they can navigate the corridors of decision-making in the corporate office. So you buy a local firm. Same principle with a local person. He understands the local market, he understands the local executives. Now, when a firm does that, I'm not saying all the time, but it does indicate that sales are more important than the overriding culture of the firm because they're obviously saying, we'd rather have someone who can connect us to buyers than someone who understands the culture and comes from within the firm and piggyback him, not piggyback, parachute him in to learn the culture over time. The firm's basically saying, hey, you know what, we're putting sales a little bit ahead of everyone else here. So, so you know, firms like to argue and say that, well, someone else is lowering prices, someone else is doing this, but look at the hiring decisions. It all starts at the hiring decisions, right? So they're hiring people that don't understand the culture, so you start diluting the culture. Now, if a firm is growing very rapidly, it has the choice of hiring people from outside at senior levels, which constantly dilutes the culture, or it has the choice of bringing in more junior people and aggressively developing through the ranks. Now, the reason why firms tend to like bringing in senior people externally is it's faster to do things. You bring in people at a junior level and you have to you know, develop them or you fly in people that are junior level from another office and bring them into, I don't know, South Africa, Brazil, it takes much, much, much more effort, time and money to develop them. So when firms collapse or when firms make bad decisions, it's usually because they are pursuing some form of a growth target and most often it's not evolutionary, it's not incremental, it's rather revolutionary. I mean, we've seen that happen with Roland Berger recently, right? They went on a war path opening up offices as, in as many locations as they can and they basically ran out of cash. Now, Roland Berger won't admit to that, but you know, if you know the behind the scenes mechanics of what's happening, that's what's happening to them. They've opened up many offices, so they've committed a lot of capital, fixed costs, and they're in a position now where they have to bring in revenue. And what you're seeing them do is that they're doing two things there. They are going after acquisitions that bring in revenue that is not necessarily the kind of work that they want to do, more strategy-oriented. And secondly, Roland Berger is aggressively hiring people they can staff immediately. So now that's, that's a key difference. They're not hiring generalists that they can train to be good consultants. They're hiring people that have a sector knowledge or consulting knowledge that they can staff onto projects immediately, which then begs the question, why are you going to Roland Berger? Are you going to Roland Berger because you want to be a great consultant? Because it sounds to me like they're hiring you if you already have something that you can sell to clients. So what exactly are they teaching you? Now, the same thought process can apply to um, 
Bain when they've been hiring all these senior partners who don't have any cultural link to Bain. You know, why are you hiring such a senior person? Are you actually telling me that the ability to be staffed into a project immediately, generate revenue, is more important than the Bain culture? And of course, you know, Bain is going to disagree that they're doing this, but the numbers speak for itself. I mean, we had our um, firms consulting partner get together in Atlanta and the southern United States recently and I remember some of the partners were telling me some of their friends from McKinsey at take at, you know senior guys partners at joined Bain at a senior level now you can argue whatever way you want to do this as Bain justify it whichever way you want but if it's a firm that's prides itself so much on culture clearly culture is not the most important thing now the decline of firms is not something that happens with just a few triggers and you say, oh, we can pinpoint the reason. It's like the decline of countries. A lot of things happen. Usually complacency is the most important thing. Complacency around hiring standards. Complacency around putting sales first. Now, I spoke about the other lens of health and performance, right? I want to switch gears here and just introduce that because it's important. Health and performance is a very important way of analyzing a firm, made famous by, I think, Richard Rummelt, the you know guru of corporate strategy from California. So what he said and what a lot of the consultants piggybacked off and built into a way of analyzing companies, he said that you can be very... You can perform very well and be very unhealthy. You can be very unhealthy, but be perf- you can be very healthy and be performing very badly. And an example of performance is a financial metric. When you are posting extraordinarily high revenue growth, you are performing well. But if you're generating that revenue growth through short-term tactics of hiring people just because they have consulting experience, hiring partners just because they have relationships, and you are neglecting your culture and for the senior people and neglecting embedding your culture in the junior people, well, in the long term, you're going to see the impact of that because these people generate a lot of value to the business, but they don't understand the culture of the organization. So when it, when as they start generating more and more revenue, they start becoming more and more senior, more and more powerful, they have more influence in decisions, but they have more influence in decisions without understanding the DNA of the organization. Now, you can argue as much as you want that it's easy to pick up the DNA of an organization, but that's like telling me that you can go to Brazil, having never visited it, live there for six months and be an expert in Brazilian culture. That's what you're telling me. And I think we all know that is patently untrue. It takes a lot of time to understand the culture of a country. It takes a lot of time to understand the culture of an organization. Now, it's one thing to say I can pick up the attributes of the culture of an organization, which consultants can do. Yeah, you can do that. It's quite another thing to live within the culture of an organization and make decisions that enhance the culture of an organization. Pretty difficult to do, right? Now, a consulting firm should always do things that impact its health in a positive way, even if it hurts performance in the short term. If you chase performance in the short term, you could do things that hurt the health of a business. The classic example of that is a salesman who gets a bonus in December and pushes through as many sales as he can in October and November, alienating all his clients, gets the big bonus in December because everyone says you're such a high performer, 
but he leaves in January and the new salesman is forced to come in and deal with all the clients he alienated who now no longer want to work with him and hurt the company. So when companies talk about high-performing individuals, hell no, who cares if you're high-performing? What impact do you have on the health of the business? That's what I'm more interested in. And people always sit down with me and tell me, Michael, you know, I'm a high-performing individual. My performance has been this, this, this. And I say, okay, but what impact have you had on the health of the business? What impact have you had on the sustainability of the business? Now, I can talk in heavy detail about the financial theory, corporate finance theory that distinguishes between health and performance. It is not some airy-fairy, nebulous organizational concept. We can put real hard and fast numbers behind this, but I'm not going to do that because this is not a corporate finance podcast. But the point I'm trying to make here is that when a consulting firm starts pursuing performance above health, you have a problem there. And health is distinguished by those things that lead to the long-term sustainability and viability of the firm in the way you want to conduct business. The last part is important, in the way you want to conduct business. If you want to conduct business by not setting up websites and running sales seminars, then it's going to take you longer to generate sales. And all the other firms that are you know, pushing stuff on the clients will achieve better performance you may grow slower, but the moral of the story is that you will grow more sustainably. Now, let's come back to the other lens of sales, delivery, hiring, developing, and IP development, right? If you hire someone externally who is great at, let's say, understanding the automotive sector, but is not groomed in the way you as Bain, BCG, McKinsey does projects, and you put them onto a project. Now, let's just take this to a very practical level because that's the only way to analyze things. So you've got the, cons- you've got the client sitting with that consultant and chatting about the culture of the organization. Now, if that client asks the consultant, tell me a little bit about the culture of this company, you know, people talk about these things, what do you think he's going to say? A better question for you is what do you think he can say? Right? I mean, he doesn't know anything about the culture beyond what he's read about and what he's heard. He's going to have a very superficial example of the culture of the organization. Now, the cultural thing, I think, is a little bit easier to overcome because partners will teach that to you. But if you're being put onto a client site and you're not being trained to analyze problems the way the firm analyzes problems. You are bringing all of the baggage you brought from the previous firm and deploying it onto this project. So what value do you get from being on this, for working in this company? Nothing. You're basically someone who's delivering projects, but the firm is not developing you. In, in a manner of speaking, you're not increasing in value. You may think you're increasing in value, but you're not. Because... You only increase in value when you learn new skills. And unless the firm is teaching you new skills, there is a problem right there. Now, IP development is quite important. It's the first one that I haven't spoken about, but it's by far the most important thing. IP development is developing new ideas and taking the client's side. It's one of the most expensive things to do, one of the most time-consuming things to do. Imagine you're in a small startup. You've got to go out. I mean, you've got, what? let's say you work really out 16-hour days, right? You've got to come into the office. You've got to, got to meet clients because that's how you keep the firm alive, meeting clients and getting them for them to part some money into your you know, bank account so you can do things with them. So you've got to meet clients, right? Now, you've got to meet clients. At the same time, you've got to be involved in delivery of projects. What most boutique firms do is they have salespeople and they have delivery people. 
that's a pretty terrible idea because what happens is that if if you start treating someone like a salesperson, they act like a salesperson. A top firm will never have salespeople. Every partner is involved in building client relationships and every partner is involved in delivering. Therefore, you don't fall into the trap of just selling something that you cannot deliver because you are forced to feel the pain the client is feeling and the project team the client and the, the pain the project team is feeling as they you know implement or or solve the issue that you've agreed that should be solved so you're meeting clients you are hopefully spending some time on a project helping the engagement teams deliver the work at the same time you've got to recruit people you've got to interview people right that takes time. One interview is about an hour, two interviews are two hours. Meeting one client can take anywhere from an hour to an hour and a half, maybe even two hours. So one client, let's say an hour and a half. One one interview, one hour. You're spending time on a project, let's say two hours minimum. That's already four hours. It's already a third of your day gone, right? In that time, you've also got to develop people. So when people come to you and ask for advice, you've got to give them advice. Let's say an hour there. That's five hours. Into IP development. Well, well, IP development can take a lot of time. You've got to sit down and think. Now, that's easily five, six, maybe seven, eight hours. Conservatively, five hours. Not so conservatively, you're spending upwards of eight to ten hours. So that's ten over sixteen, right? gone. The time is basically finished. Five, five eighths. Finished. In most firms, what they do is they fix this problem by separating these roles. They'll have someone, a partner involved in sales, a partner involved in delivery. Recruiting is done by certain groups. Training is done by certain groups. IP development is done by certain groups. Now, the reason why I don't like this model and why it's not done at the major firms like this is because to be a good partner, you have to know how your people are being developed. You cannot outsource that to the HR department. You have to be involved in training because quality training leads to quality consultants. And the only quality training can come from the people who are actively involved in building the firm, in managing clients, and thinking through the big issues. You cannot expect to have outstanding consultants who are excited and eager to do big things when you're outsourcing training to some associates and managers who put it together in their spare time. When I see a firm outsourcing, I'm using the word outsourcing, it's not really true, but where they delegate training to junior people, I get quite upset. The most important role of a firm is what? Which of the five? It's actually all of the five. Partners need to be involved in all of the five. And, and a partner may be more involved in one of the five and less involved in the other four, but he has to be involved in all of these four. So what leads to a decline of a great consulting firm? Well, it's when a partner starts thinking that, you know what? Things are going so well that we can start specializing. A partner cannot specialize. He needs to be a jack of all trades across all four of the areas. And look, a lot of people are going to disagree with this, and you're fine. You're welcome to disagree with me. You can give me examples of how your firm is doing it differently, but the point is you don't know. And secondly, I'm not talking about any of the other firms. I'm talking about the big three. So when I see Bain basically bringing in ex-partners from outside the firm who don't understand the culture to just be involved in selling. Bain is basically saying, look, we're doing so well, we can just cut back a little bit on our culture to focus on sales. That's a pretty bad idea. When you start cutting back on your culture, you might as well just strangle yourself right then and there, right? 
Firms will say, well, it doesn't matter. We've got partners delivering it. This partner will open up and this partner will close. Well, it's the message you send to the market. The message you send to the market that sales are so important, we're willing to bring in people that don't understand our culture. That's basically what you're doing. Now, how do you think that looks to junior people? How do you think that translates into their enthusiasm? How do you think it works out when the partner who was brought in to sell gets involved in recruitment and he's recruiting people for different standards? You can always argue by saying multiple people are interviewing, but let me tell you something. When a firm has seven people interviewing you, I've seen this so many times in the New York Times and Fortune where firms are so proud of the fact that 15 people are interviewing us because it means we really check things. No, it's actually the opposite. When 7 or 15 people are interviewing you, it means that the firm doesn't know what they want and they're passing the buck so that one person can always say, you know what, 14 other people interviewed me or interviewed that person. That's why I was sure it's the right person to hire because 14 other people said otherwise. When a firm knows what they want, they should only have two interview rounds because they know what they want. They've trained everyone to look for the most consistent things and they believe and they are sure in the decision of those few people. So, let's put this into practical economic terms. If you're hiring a partner from outside the firm. And I'm picking on Bain a lot here, but it could apply to just about anyone. And I apologize for picking on Bain here. Yeah, it's just an example that comes to mind. But when you're hiring a partner from a side who doesn't understand the culture of the firm, you've got to back him up by having other people pick up the things he's doing. That's a cost. It's a time it's time inefficiency. You've got to do more interviews. Do you think that's fun to do interviews? Do you think that leads to productivity? No. So the more interviews you're doing, the more dead time you're spending. And people always say, but this is useful. Interviews are important. Yes, they're important. I don't disagree with that. But who says you have to do seven interviews to figure out whether you want the person or not? It means you cannot make up your mind. Firms that bull themselves up by closely protecting their culture understand that everyone in the organization shares that culture, shares that belief, shares that training. So that when you put them in a certain location, you can trust that they will do the right things. As soon as you start saying, oh, we're going to back up on our culture, we're going to back down on our culture just to get more sales here, you have to do other things to compensate for the lack of skills that person has. So, why do great firms fail or why do small firms never become great? Small firms never become great because they can never balance the five things of sales, delivery, hiring, training of people, and intellectual property development. That's They, they absolutely struggle to do that. They either so 